17 years ago, I experienced something that I never thought would happen to me. I had a brush with greatness that I've never forgotten. Vicki and I were attending a political rally for Congressman Jeff Davis. And the keynote speaker was to be President Bush. Security was everywhere. How do I know? I had a lot of time to take it in. We got there two hours early, packed into this hotel banquet room as I tried to work my way up as close as I could get to the stage. But despite all my maneuvering, when he stepped out to begin to speak, I was still several rows back from the front. But I still found myself thinking, oh my goodness, this is so cool to be this close to a president of the United States. Ooh, I was like, wow. But then he did something I did not see coming. When he finished speaking, he stepped down off the platform, got right up, right up next to the crowd, and began to walk along that velvet rope, shaking hands, talking to people, and making all the guys in navy blazers and sunglasses oh so nervous. I mean, I'm standing back there watching. I'm like, he's talking to people I know, people from our church. I remember standing there thinking, he's talking to Carol Nielsen. I know her. I've talked to her. She gives me tomatoes from her garden every summer. In other words, right? What do you, what do you tend to do? Excitement simply by association. I thought, I've talked to her. Now he's talking to her. So it's like I've talked to him. Boom, 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 boom. How cool is that? But then it happened. Carol didn't do it for me. But another woman from our church, he was talking to, waved her hand back like this and said, this is my pastor. Yeah. And when she did that, he lifted his eyes. He fixed them on me and he stretched out across that velvet rope past some other people and shook my hand that I have never washed. No. (laughs) You're thinking, I've touched your hand. Gross, Brad. 17 years. No, no. And shook my hand. Oh, but it gets even better. Then he spoke to me. He said, do you know what I read every morning? I said, I've heard that you read my utmost for his highest by Oswald Sanders. He said, that's right. And then he asked me about the economy. Social security and the rising cost of fuel. No, he didn't. (laughs) He moved on and he's probably never thought about me again. Here's my point. As exciting as that was, and despite how it is fixed in my mind, probably forevermore, it was not life-changing. Because President Bush is still just a man. A great man, but still just a man. And so here's what I want you to get a hold of as we head into this Christmas season. Get a hold of it. You might never get to meet a US president, but Christmas reminds us that every single one of us can have more than just a momentary brush with greatness. You can have a personal relationship with the God of the universe through his son, Jesus Christ. That's what Christmas is all about. And what God did, stay with me, what God did to make that possible for us was a much, much, much bigger step down than President Bush coming down off the platform to shake a few hands. And so here's what I want to do today. Oh, I want to help you look past that baby in the manger to get a hold of what was really going on when Jesus took on flesh, was born of a virgin, and laid 
in a manger. And I think Philippians chapter 2 can do it for us. Because here's what I think about Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 is like a director's cut version of the Christmas story. You understand what I'm talking about? When you really like something, you get that extended version, director's cut version. Because here's what happens in Philippians 2. Like a director's cut version. He leaves out the animals. He leaves out the wise men and the shepherds and even the star. But then gives us some behind the scenes extra footage that we don't usually think about at Christmas, but should actually be thinking about most. Go to Philippians 2. Philippians chapter 2, and you follow along as I begin reading in verse 5. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held onto or clung to, but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and has given him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, how many knees? Every knee should bow. Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And how many tongues? And every tongue should confess that Say it with me. Jesus Christ is Lord. Say it again. Jesus Christ is Lord. Say it so that our lost world can hear it. Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So what, ooh, what are some of the behind the scenes extra footage that could shed this some light on this baby in the manger. Number one, here's the first thing. That baby in the manger, you guys, is your creator God who gave you breath. Oh, don't make a mistake. That's not when Jesus began to exist. He had always existed equal to God in fellowship with God. God, that baby in the manger is your creator God who gave you breath. Look at what I'm talking about in verse six. Who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. When it says Jesus was in the form of God, you need to realize one of the, one of the beauties of God choosing to see that the New Testament was written in Koine Greek I love our English language, but oh my goodness, Koine Greek is just so exciting. Because just like some of you probably know, we have the word love. They have four words for love. You can be much more clear about what you're talking. You can make distinctions. They have a lot of multiple words for one thing. They had two words for form, morphe and schema. Morphe was the Greek word that meant the very essence of something that is essential and does not change and cannot be altered in any way. Schema was their word that meant outward form of something that does change over time or based on circumstances. In other words, I'll give you an example. The morphe of every human being sitting here is humanity. You are a human being created in the image of God. That's your morphe. You won't at some point become a dog or a cat or a houseplant. You are a human being and that does not change. Your schema, 
I hope you realize this. By looking in the mirror, you should have to admit it. Your schema or outward form changes over time. Yeah, that's what oil of Olay is about. It changes over time as you watch yourself from infant to toddler to teenager. One of my favorite things that happens to me here, being a pastor of the same place 28 years, I'll run into someone, I'm introducing myself for the first time on a Sunday, they're like, Brad, I'm little so-and-so. Well, they don't say little, I'm so-and-so. I'm like, you're all grown up, you're a woman. As you change and grow, your schema is different. There's infant, there's toddler, there's teenager, there's young adult, there's middle age, there's older saint. That's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, though the outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being redeemed. Our morphe stays the same. Schema changes. And based on what you've been through, how hard life's been to you, things you've experienced, schema can be altered even more dramatically. The Holy Spirit used the word morphe that indicates Jesus is essentially the very essence, fullness of God that never changes. He's God. He's God. He was God. He was still God then. And he's God today. Today. That baby in the manger is your creator, creator God that gives you breath. But now what is verse 7 talking about? Look at that. Look at verse seven, but made himself nothing. Be careful here. Even the old King James, if some of you have it in your lap, said he emptied himself. Well, be careful. It doesn't mean he stopped being God and emptied himself of deity. He made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus did not lay aside any of his deity. He laid aside the privileges and comforts and full expression of that deity and willingly came into a world where he experienced the limitations of humanity, which is why he would say from time to time, Only my father knows, right? I don't even know these things. Only my father knows. That's why he would say, I only do what I see my father. He limited himself on a level of humanity. He was tired, so tired that he fell asleep in a boat that was, had a storm raging. He was hungry and worn out and sat at the well while the disciples went into Samaria to find food. He willingly experienced human limitations while never ceasing to be God. Think of it this way. Deity was not subtracted. Humanity was simply added. That's why that word right there in verse 7 says, taking the form. He added humanity to deity. And that's why Jesus is the God man. He's the God man. Fully God, fully human. The God man. But let me show you something else you don't usually get by simply looking at the baby in the manger. Number two, that baby in the manger is is your savior who came to redeem you. He is your savior who came to redeem you. Look at verse eight. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Doesn't say he humbled himself by coming to feed 5,000 people, by coming to heal lame legs, by coming to open blind eyes. He did all that. But his purpose and mission from the very beginning was to die for us in our place as a substitutionary, all sufficient, once and final payment for sin 
that heifers and goats and bulls and doves and sweet grain offerings could never do. They could only temporarily cover, 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 cover until, as John the Baptist recognized, he was able to say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the what? Sin of the world. Praise God. He came to redeem you, to save you, to save me from my sins. That humility led him all the way to the cross where he suffered the agony of being separated from his father for the very first time in all of eternity which is why he cried out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you, what, forsaken me? Do you realize God the Father forsook him when he became sin for you? God cannot look on sin. God cannot fellowship with sin. God the Father, for the first time, turned from his son and forsook him because in that moment, he had become sin for us. All of my sin, all of your sin, all the sins of any man or woman who would ever put their trust in Jesus in that moment was placed on him. Which means that then God the Father poured out his wrath against sin on his son instead of us. What a savior. What a savior. That's the cup that Jesus was talking about, you guys, when he wrestled in the garden the night before his death and said, oh, Father, if there's any other way, if the, that was his humanity. Did Jesus know what he had come to do? Absolutely. Guess what? He was fully human. Would you have been overwhelmed and terrified at the prospect of the cross? Would you have been overwhelmed and terrified? It was not the spear in his side that he knew was coming. It was not even the laceration of his back that was laid open with 39 lashes. It was not the crown of thorns, the spitting in his face, the pulling of his beard, the blindfold and punching and mocking. It was that he knew the wrath of almighty, holy, holy God was going to be poured out on him. Whenever the Bible talks about cup, it's referring to wrath. He drank. Oh, because even in that prayer, three times he pleaded so earnestly that he sweat Drops of blood. Do you know that's a historical thing? That's not Disney fantasy, you guys. There's record through history of Roman soldiers sweating drops of blood prior to battle. When a human being is under such stress and pressure and angst and overwhelmed, capillaries can burst and blood can mix with your sweat. He sweat drops of blood, but then said, nevertheless, not my what? But whose? If you've lost sight of it, that's what Jesus did for us. Oh, please don't go around saying, I'm not sure he loves me. I'm not sure he loves me forevermore. I don't know what you're going through forevermore. You, you keep looking to the cross and like, oh my goodness, he loves me that much. Oh my goodness, he loves me that much. Oh my goodness, why would he do that for me? He came to be your savior who would solve your biggest problem, which is not a relational problem today. It's not an economic problem. It's not a parenting problem. It was your sin problem that separated you from a holy God and would landed each one of us in an eternal hell. He thwarted that He stood in our place and took it for us. That's why the angel said to Joseph when he came to him to say, your woman you're engaged to, you're not even married yet, but she's going to bring forth a child. Call his name Jesus. Why? Because he shall save his people from their sins. 
That's why 2 Corinthians 5.21. Oh, 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, he, God the Father, made him, God the Son, to be sin. Who knew no sin? He had never sinned. He had never known sin. He had never experienced sin. And God made him to be sin. Two wonderful words. What are they? Say it louder. For us. For us. So that. That's a purpose clause. Where are we headed with this? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Oh, you guys, that's the great exchange. Do you realize anyone who ever trusts Christ experiences a great exchange? He gets our sin and we get his righteousness. Oh, it's more than your sin record is wiped clean and God the Father forevermore sees emptiness. Oh, it's better than that. No more sin record and the righteousness of Jesus Christ fully applied to your account as if it was yours. There is no other religion like this. Oh, robe of righteousness. This is not your own. And guess what? It can never be taken from you. That's why Jesus himself, oh, he fed, he healed, he taught. But you'll watch him in the gospels. We're there now in Luke. When it came time for him to head towards Jerusalem to do what he really came to do, he'll call it my hour, my hour. He would say relentlessly earlier, my hour is not yet come, but my hour is not yet come. Oh, when the hour came, listen to what he says in John 12. The hour has come that the son of man should be glorified. Well, guess what? For him to be glorified took something that we would say is horrifying. What happened to him was horrifying. But at no point in his life did he bring God more glory. Oh, my hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies... It remains alone, but if it dies, guess what? Jesus did not want to remain alone. He wanted to save people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. That's what Revelation 7, 9 says is happening right now today. He, God's spirit is saving men and women from every, no one can stop it. Communism can't stop it. Nobody can stop this. It's happening in China. It's happening in Turkey. It's happening in Kazakhstan. It's happening in Palestine. God is saving people from every tribe and language and nation for his glory. Jesus said, oh, it remains alone. But if it dies... It produces much grain. Now my soul is troubled. He's a human being. Oh, my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus did for us what you could never do for yourself. Oh, hallelujah, what a savior. That's why we make much of Jesus unashamedly. That's why we won't back off. That's why we won't start saying, oh, any religion will do. That's why we won't give in to, that sounds very arrogant for you to say that Jesus is the only way. He's the only way because no one else did this for you. Muhammad didn't do this. Buddha didn't do this. Joseph Smith didn't do this because they couldn't do this. There's only one person, Jesus Christ, who was perfect God, man, who kept the law and then died in your place. That's why he said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes in the Father but my being. That was not 
arrogant. That was oh so compassionate and it was good news. There didn't have to be any way for us to be right with God. He could have sent all of us to hell and he chose to save untold millions by giving his very own son for us, for us, for us. But let me show you something else you, you can get from this director's cut passage that you don't see from the other Christmas passages. Number three, that baby in the manger is our only hope for real and radical change. You realize God did not just send Jesus into our world to change our eternal destiny. Yes, praise God, no more hell and heaven. But do you realize he intends to change us right now that we could live radically different, right? Never perfect, but radically different because of Jesus. Does Jesus live in you now? Kind of weak. Is Jesus alive today? Does resurrected Jesus live in you? Has he given you the fullness of his spirit? Has he given you direct access to his throne in prayer day or night? Has he given you his word alive to you? Woo! We can live differently now. But you'll never do it unless you keep your eyes fixed on Jesus and unless there's a whole lot of Jesus controlling you and less of you. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Here's what I think is interesting. Here's what I want you to see. This is a Christmas passage that talks about the incarnation. So that's why I'm there on December 3rd. But do you realize Paul's intent was not to just randomly all of a sudden just gloriously write us some stuff about the incarnation. In context, these glorious truths about Jesus and the incarnation, the glorious truths about Jesus are here because of something ugly and sinful about us. Let me show you what I'm talking about. When Paul penned these glorious verses, he did it to help the church at Ephesus stop fighting with each other. You know, I hear people sometimes say, oh, we need to get back to the the, the original early church. Which one do you want to get back to? They all remind me of today, which really encourages me. It really does as a pastor. Sometimes I think, is something wrong with our church? Nope. I mean, in Philippi, we got two ladies fighting. And Paul says, tell Sanctity and Phoebe to please knock it off. Get along. I'm sure it was VBS gift bags or something. You know? I mean, I mean, you see every single church he wrote, it was like, oh my goodness, you've got a man having sex with his father's second wife, like, and you're not doing anything about it? It was a mess. Second Corinthians is because the church began to attack Paul and people came in and said, who does Paul think he is? He's not a real apostle. He has no authority. Oh, his speech is contemptible. He's not even a powerful orator. Welcome to the church. He wrote these glorious verses about Jesus because of something about us that's ugly and sinful and we need help with. They were fighting with each other. They were promoting self. So now let's get the context. Start in verse one. Verse one. So if, now when you see that word, if the Greek word actually could be translated since. So he's not saying maybe there is, maybe there isn't. If there is, please do this. So since there is encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only for his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Then and only then does he go into have this mind, which Jesus had. And do you realize this is not the only place Paul does this? The older I get, 
the more I read my Bible, please don't give up on reading your Bible. Oh, please, you will start to make more connections. You will start, it is unlike any other book. I read about 50 books a year. There's probably only 20 books I've ever read a second time. I read this every year and every year he shows me more. And every year he illumines me. And every year he connects another dot. And every year he causes me to fall on my knees and say, this is so good. This is so good. This is so good. He keeps showing me more. This is unlike any other book. And I'll tell you one of the things that he's been showing me. How the apostle Paul loves to put Jesus at the center of the answer for most of our biggest problems. I think that's worth noting. He never just says, stop that, do this. More of this, less of that. Here's your list. It's worth noting that Paul puts Jesus, the person of Jesus, who he is, at the center of the answer for what I think, being a pastor 28 years now and living with my sinful self, 60, are four of our biggest struggles. Pride. Self hurt and hanging on to our money. Does those sound like tough areas to you? I hope you'd be honest enough to say, you realize pride, oh my goodness, it does not die. You can stab it, stab it, stab it, and oh, I think it's alive. Oh, this is a big deal. Self? Do we want to give up on self? Oh, hurt. Every time I talk about forgiveness, Bitterness, the room gets so quiet. Why? There are Christians that struggle to forgive. It's a big deal. It's hard. Every time I talk about money, it gets quiet. Because it's hard to let go of that stuff, isn't it? Well, guess what? He actually puts Jesus at the center of the answer for pride, self, hurt, and money. Because we need, oh, we need, if I take my eyes off Jesus, you guys, if I lose sight of who he is, what he did, and where he is in my life, I won't be able to do the things that God says about pride, self, hurt, and money. So right here in this passage, it's about pride. He's like, oh, don't be guilty of selfish ambition and conceit, thinking you're better than other people. Don't have your own agenda. Are we not guilty of our own agenda? So let me help you. That's what verse six is about. Did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. I know that might sound confusing. Even the Old Test, Old King James says, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Here's why it got translated that way. That Greek word used right there meant to sneak in and grab something. But it can also be translated grasp, clutch. Jesus did not cling to his rights and keep saying, but I'm God, but I'm God, but I'm God. I shouldn't have to go down there, Father. I shouldn't have to suffer with them. I don't want to get a cold. I don't want to be tired. I don't want to be hungry. I don't want to be misunderstood. I don't want to be abused. I certainly don't want to die. I'm God. He didn't cling to his rights as God, but humbled himself taking the form of a servant and being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's why probably I've been doing it 10 years now. My go-to passage for marriage counseling is Philippians 2, 1 to 11. You're like, what? It doesn't say marriage. It doesn't need to say marriage. That passage would change a marriage, will change a home, will change a group of coworkers, will change a church family. It's my go-to. It's my go-to. Oh, don't look out for your own. What, what happens in marriage? Everybody looking out for themselves. Everybody's defending self. Everybody's promoting self. Everybody's clinging to their so-called rights. So afraid they won't get what they think they deserve. So letter A, you will keep fighting for your rights. Quote. I put it in quote because how many rights do we actually have? Thank you. Zero. But you'll keep fighting for your so-called rights until you're gripped by his humility. Oh my goodness, if he did that and he lives in me, I can do this. The new King James said, consider others better 
than yourself. I've had people actually look at me in counseling and say, but what if they're not better? Okay, back it up to the other problem. Pride. Oh, we got a cluster going on here now. But what if she's not better? Uh, What if I smack you in the side of the head? Which I haven't said or done. Right? It's like, ooh, ooh. And how do I know this? Let me be really honest, which I often do with you. I hope you appreciate this. When we were in marriage counseling, I remember literally sitting there thinking, but my wife's better. I'm organized. I know where my keys are. I shut drawers all the way. I make lists. I don't leave envelopes on the counter. I know you're probably thinking, those were the problems? Yes, that's how wicked I was. But those were my thoughts. And our marriage changed when I actually got a hold of, she's better. She loves people better than I do. I'm so busy doing the next thing. People actually matter. They're created in the image of God. The pillow's in the corner of the couch. I don't think that's the most important thing. Order in our home is not the most important thing. God brought me into, God brought her into my life actually for me to learn from her. Guys, get this. If you have a wife, he gave her to you for you to learn from her, not for you to judge her, dominate her, or try to change her into another you. We don't need two of you. One is enough. And now what God has done, I just tell it to you. I love to say to people, and they'll say, oh, blah, 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 about you. And I'll say, I learned that from my wife. I learned that from my wife. I learned that from my wife. Now, I still know where my keys are. It's not a bad thing, but it's certainly not the most important thing. Dear me. Oh, oh. You'll keep fighting for your rights until you're gripped by his humility. But guess what? Fighting for your rights is closely related to holding on to your life. Letter B. You will hold on to your life until you're gripped by his death. Think about how often Jesus said... The one who tries to save his life, hold on to it. What if I don't get what I want? Will, what? And he who loses his life will find it. I found life, you guys, on a whole new level when I finally said, I'm gonna stop holding on to mine and stop being so concerned that I'll get my way or I'll be happy. Guess what? I'm so much happier dying to self and becoming who he has made me now. And oh, I have a wife and a marriage that is delightful, not perfect, but delightful. Oh, and some of the best things, get this, some of the best things that God has ahead for you are on the other side of what you fear so much. Do it, die, fall on the sword and say, oh God, do something different. Let's not repeat this. Let's not just stay stuck in this cycle of I say what I say, she, and it's not just marriage. It can be your roommate, can be coworkers, can be whatever. Put it on a relational level because here's what you need to understand. Relationships in general fall apart unless there's death to self. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5. Paul, for the love of Christ controls us. Guess what the problem is? Often there's something else controlling us. My agenda, my concerns, my fears, my way. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all. That, that's another purpose clause. When he died to save people, and when you put your trust in him, watch this. That those who live, he's talking about believers. You're alive now. You were dead in trespasses and sins. Lights out, darkness. That those who live should what? No longer live for themselves. Three words, but for him. Now get this. When you truly begin to live for him, you stop being so concerned about you. But for him, but for him, but for him, but for him.
God for him. And oh, marriage in particular, that was supposed to be the sweetest, most incredible comfort in this world, that's the only relationship that's called oneness, one flesh, not mother-daughter, not father-son, not two military guys that've been through war. This thing that was supposed to be the sweetest thing becomes all out war unless there's death to self. You guys, oneness only happens after each person is willing to die. Falls in the ground and watch what God does. But oh, and that's why it's unfortunate in your bulletin outline They told me in the front office, it it went away. I had highlighted in dark and italic what I wanted you to see in Ephesians 5, 22 to 32. So now you're just gonna have to go looking for it. But I had put in bold and italic every time it says as, even as, just as. You realize that marriage passage? It's quite radical. Husband's lover. Oh, I do. Oh, I don't think you get this. How much? As Christ loved the church. And gave himself for her. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Huh, he's not worth it. As unto the Lord. These, these things we struggle with the most, you guys, only work when you put Jesus right at the center with this hinge. As, even as, just as, as. You don't fix your eyes on your wife. You don't fix your eyes on your husband. You fix your eyes on your Savior. Oh, it, go, it becomes war when you lose sight of Jesus. As, five times in eight verses, he says, as, even as, just as, as. Even, you can't, here's how I like to say it. We don't have what it takes for a marriage to thrive. And we do bring everything necessary to kill one. I don't think that's too bold of a statement. We don't have what is necessary to cause a marriage to thrive, but we do bring everything necessary to absolutely destroy one. Say, oh God, help us, help us. We need more Jesus. I need to fix my eyes on Jesus. I want to remember what he did for me and where he is in all this. In other words, John the Baptist got it right in John 3.30 when he said, he must Increase. I must say it. Usually there's just too much of you, too much of me. We need more of him, him, him. And it's the same thing you see with letter C. You'll hold on to your hurt until you're gripped by his forgiveness. Oh, this is a big deal. Hurt and bitterness and revenge and forgiveness. And so the same thing. Our key passages that call us to forgive, guess what? Have even as, just as, and put Jesus right there. Forgive, forgive, just as God in Christ has forgiven who? You. You got to remember, has their sin against you does it exceed your sin against God? The answer is no, my friend. Your sin against God is so much bigger. Your entire life of sin, he forgave. And he says, just as I forgave you, so also, it doesn't say you might consider, so also you must do. Jesus Jesus, he puts Jesus right there. And then on money, it's interesting, Paul's writing to the Corinthians who actually were poor. It says, in their poverty, they gave generously and sacrificially. And he brings Jesus regarding giving in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And says, there's where you have it again. I want you to excel at this grace also. The NIV says, I want you to excel at this grace of giving. Paul was trying to raise an offering to send to Jerusalem for believers who had been through a famine. But he actually commends the Corinthians who were some of the poorest people and says, oh my goodness, they gave. Oh, they gave just generously. Why? They understood what he says next. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was 
rich. Yet, for your sake, he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Pride, self, hurt, money. Answer, more Jesus. Jesus. It's not we get saved by Jesus and after that we just try to do the Christian life. You will not be able to. We're saved by Jesus and we're changed by Jesus living in us and through us. And that's why Hebrews 12 says, as you run this race, fixing your eyes on your disappointing wife. No. (laughs) Fixing your eyes on that disappointing job. No. Fixing your eyes on your prodigal child. No. Fixing your eyes on, say his name, Jesus. Jesus. The author and finisher of our faith. I don't want to just start the Christian life, you guys. I want to finish. If you're going to finish, you keep your eyes on Jesus. There's no other way. There's no other way. And watch what will start to happen. Because 2 Corinthians 3, not in your bulletin, but it just popped into my head, talks about as we fix our eyes on him. I think it's 318, 2 Corinthians 318. We are changed from one degree of glory to another. You want to be changed? You don't just dig in with some fat book and do some serious Bible study. You know, I think you need to read the Bible, but hear me. Christianity is about a person. It's not a body of knowledge. When you know him and you love him and you're looking at him and you're communing with him and you're worshiping him and you're listening to him, you start to become like him. And that's when you live differently. Oh, that first Christmas started in a dirty manger. And it ended on a wooden cross. But he did not stay dead. He rose again. And so my final point is that baby in the manger right now is king of kings and lord of lords. That's where Paul goes next. Philippians 2 launches him from the manger scene to his glorious place of exaltation now. Paul starts in verse 9. Therefore, in light of what he did, who he is, how he humbled himself, how he let go of his rights, how he stepped in and gave himself for us, therefore God has highly exalted him. The word in the Greek is actually one word for highly exalted it's hyperhipso. Do you recognize anything? Hyper. It means super exalted, hyper exalted, not just a little bit. Has hyper exalted Jesus and given him a name that is above every name. Right now. Right now, that is his position. Right now, that is his place of exaltation. The first time he came into this world, a handful of shepherds and some wise men made a note of it. The next time he comes, which is soon and very soon, every living creature will see it. And every man, woman, boy, child, president, dictator, rock star, and millionaire athlete will bow their knee and say, Jesus Christ is, say it, Lord. But that doesn't mean everybody's going to heaven. They're all going to say it. But only those that said it now will be ushered into the new heaven and the new earth. Oh, let me show you what I'm talking about. Let me show you something that the Hallmark Channel will not show you. And here's what I think is interesting. They love the sentimentality of a young mother. A manger with straw, some lights, a furry donkey, and some sweet music. They can handle that. They do not want to think about who he is now. Oh, you guys, he's not sweet baby Jesus today. He's king of kings and lord of lords. Go to Revelation 19. Show you what the Hallmark Channel will not show you. Revelation 19, beginning in verse 6 as we close. 
Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord, our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Skip to verse 11. Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse, the one sitting on it. Oh, sweet baby Jesus is all grown up, you guys. Him who's sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. You realize right now, he says, whosoever will may come to every sinner. When he returns again, he's going to go to war against sin and judge it, judge it. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but him. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he's called is the word of God. Who is the word of God? Jesus, John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written. Say it with me. King of kings. And Lord of Lords. Oh, come to Christ today. That He took on flesh and came into our world to save you. He does not want to judge you. But if you reject this free offer, He will become your judge. Put your trust in Christ. And oh, believers, fix your eyes back on Christ. Be a follower of Jesus. Listen to Jesus and do what Jesus does. Oh God, thank you for your son who doesn't just save us, but changes us, keeps us, holds on to us, directs us. Oh God, work in us to become more like Jesus. We must decrease. He must increase and then use us to speak this name that is life-changing to others around us in the darkness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.